Welcome to the Men at Work podcast, episode number 17. I'm your host, Travis Streb. Today we are talking to Rainier Wild. Rainier Wild works as a mentor, a guide, a spiritual practitioner, and a men's group leader. He's based in the Northwest, outside of Portland, but he works all across the country. And I had the privilege of meeting him a couple months ago at a men's retreat out in the middle of the North Cascades. And we got into some really deep conversations about the work he's doing. Uh, He's got some really unique perspectives about the plight of the modern man, uh, about the role of initiation, the role of tribe. We had a great chat. We talked about Rainier's own journey in discovering his true purpose. I mean, the guy is just massively intelligent, has a ton of experience, you know, from the psychology realm and um, just a great story. And his own story is really his message. We talked a lot about uh, this idea that men have this basement of shadows that we tend to ignore and how important it is to turn the light on in there and see what's really going on and seeing on, you know, what we want to keep and what we want to get rid of. We talked about this idea of conscious versus unconscious transformation. We talked about feminine and masculine polarity and he does a great job of breaking it down for anyone who's curious about it. We also talked at the end of our cast about mindfulness, awareness and consciousness and what they are. He's got some great practices and way more importantly, like why they actually matter for men today. So this is a great podcast, really good candid conversation with Rainier. He's got a ton of depth. Let's dive into episode number 17. ago a month and a half ago out in the middle of the north cascades um at a men's weekend and it was amazing i saw you walk in and i was like man this guy's got a crazy crazy beard and a deep look in his eye (laughs) i bet you we're going to become friends (laughs) awesome um and i think one of the things that i took away you know without you having to share it with me you know as a long epic was uh, your story and you talked about your religious upbringing, um, you know, your own, uh, big success as a, as a teacher, um, as a, as a guide, as a mentor for people. And then, you know, your own, your own failures, which I found really courageous for you to share out of the gates, but none of my listeners know any of that. And so I would love to know how does, um, how did, how did you end up working in the world of, uh, helping men discover their deepest purpose. Yeah. Well, it started in 1980. <laughs> <laughs> the year I was born. No, um, you know, I, I think we carry our entire history with us into every room we walk into. And uh, my work with men today is so born out of my own history to experience as a man, um, as a man in need, and as a man who has had to face down 
my own shadow. And for me, I trained as a spiritual director and uh, then a clinical therapist and worked in the field of psychology for over a decade and taught graduate school and, um, and generally speaking, had climbed a certain ladder of success um, in a rather meteoric way. I was helping a lot of others. It wasn't specific to men. Actually, I was specializing in chronically suicidal and self-harming clients. And those were the people I was attending to the most. And during that whole time, which it felt such, there was such an ease to it that my colleagues didn't seem to have. I, I never felt overwhelmed or burdened by it. I didn't feel like I was drained. I felt like I was able to stay long hours, you know, uh, <laughs> and, and not really exhaust myself. But I think what was happening was I was, I was creating this wonderful surface area structure, you know, this, this multi-level skyscraper that everyone could see while all the while I was developing an equally deep basement of shadows. And I was displacing so much of my inner turmoil and so much of my exhaustion and putting them into this basement that I wasn't looking at, I wasn't observing. And ultimately what happened was the floor fell in on me. And I suddenly found myself not only looking at the objects I had accumulated in my basement of shadows, but I now found myself living there. And for me, that came in powerful forms of feedback where I was suddenly being told by the, the career I had chosen that my ways of being in the world were no longer acceptable, that the coping mechanisms and the strategies that I had developed over a lifetime to manage stress, to manage my own sense of dis-ease were not okay. And it was a powerful form of feedback that drove me ultimately away from that career. And uh, for, for you know, several years after that, I, I went to the world of manual labor, <laughs> about as far from academia and psychology as possible. I was laying floors. Um, and it was a hell of a time. But in that time, I began to realize that part of the work of a man is to sink down into the soil and compost his life again. And that even though I had climbed this ladder of success, it really had actually been erected against the wrong wall. And that what I had seen as a death was actually so necessary to take me into a resurrection process. You really can't rebuild what isn't ruined first. And so my work with men is deeply inspired by my own confrontation with my own unacknowledged shadow and my own need for other men in my life. So out of that, it's kind of all been born. Well, I mean, you have, like, you've, you've got this great, um, I don't even know if it's, I wouldn't even call it necessarily a business. I mean, it is, but you've got this service that you're offering men now around initiation and tribe that I really connected with. I mean, you sent me that, your tribe manifesto, and I was reading through it, and I'm like, man, that is exactly what I think a lot of men out there are looking for. Uh, I do want to talk a bit about that, but before we do, I am, you know, 
I'm interested, and I know my listeners are like, when you talk about this, I, this concept of shadow, or I love your language, sinking into the soil and recomposting your life, you know, looking in the basement. What does that look like for guys that are really just dipping their toe into the idea that there might be a shadow somewhere in their lives? Yeah, well, let me put it in a very, very different context. I got a really bad toothache several years ago. And like most men, I was able to ignore that toothache for about a year and a half. Wow. Um, yeah, I just ignored it. I took Tylenol when I needed to. I, <laughs> But there came this distinct moment, I remember, where I was lying on the couch, uh, curled up in a fetal position, and chomping on like a dish rag. <laughs> drool coming out of my mouth kind of moaning and my spouse says to me my wife says to me you know darn it you and she wasn't quite so polite uh you need to go to the dentist I'm absolutely sick and tired of you moaning and what I realized in that moment was that I had ignored so much of what was actually showing up in my life And that it took the direct confrontation of someone I loved to really tell me I needed help. So you asked, how would most men dip their toes in this? That's usually men's first exposure to their shadow. Someone else saying, it's not working anymore. You need help. That usually is a man's first awareness because we're so good at ignoring stuff, even very painful things. Um, that's usually the first place men begin to pick up that there's a problem when they lose their job, when they lose their spouse, when there's a threat made against them, when they lose their reputation, whatever those things are, it's usually loss. And it seems to be loss around work in particular, or the ability to provide that really catalyzes men's awareness that they're going to have to deal with that basement. And but in your programs, I mean, you're not waiting for a guy to literally hit rock bottom. No, no. Um, you're, but I guess, how do you give them that experience without having them have to feel the full brunt of a, you know, a significant mm-hmm. loss? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a great, a great question because there are multiple forms of transformation. I think there's unconscious transformation, which I've just described when the world happens to you, when the floor falls out from under you. And then there's conscious transformation where you really choose it. And um, I think in my program that I offer men, what I'm really doing is conscious transformative work. And so that is creating the conditions for their awareness to change. And one of the first ways that looks like is really beginning to help them determine what the voices are in their head up to this point. Let me give you an example. Several years ago, I was invited to a prestigious uh, religious organization to consult with them. I was very, very proud of myself, very pleased with myself. And I told my friend who's an Episcopal priest uh, about this, this really wonderful opportunity. I felt so good. And he looked at me he's puerto rican and he said with a very strong accent oh i guess your daddy must be proud and um when he said that it hit me like a ton of bricks because what i realized was my joy my thrill over that opportunity had very little to do with me had a lot to do with the voice of my father 
So one of the things I initially begin to help men do is identify the different clamoring of voices in their head to actually get them to a place where they can say, this is not my value. This is not my goal. This was mommy's goal. This was daddy's goal. This is corporate America's goal. This is the state's goal. This is religion's goal. Because you really have to have a deconstructive process, no matter what way you slice it, before you can reconstruct. And so that's how I do it. Now, it is always painful, right? It's that story from Norse mythology of Odin desiring wisdom. And so he goes and he hangs on a tree for nine days and eventually surrenders his eye to gain wisdom, right? So there's this, in traditional cultures, there's this awareness that wisdom costs, truth costs. And so in my program, as in life, wisdom costs you. Well, it, it does. Um, and you know, you're, you're doing this initiation with people you know, I know from working with you and, and having, um, you know, worked alongside you, like this is powerful stuff, but what is it about initiation that is so important? I mean, you're calling it initiation and it's kind of like, to me, it sounds a lot like initiation in a frat or a sports team or something very, um, that's, that's got some pretty negative connotation to it. So what is it about initiation that's so important for you? And especially when it comes to men. Yeah, oh, that's such a great question. You're right, you, you used really good examples of how initiation shows up today. Um, those are pseudo-initiations. But if we take them back to, to really our most ancestral um, contexts, initiation was something within tribes that was vital for a man to be considered trustworthy to lead in a tribe. And what would happen to him seems to vary within tribes, but it always sort of took a similar effect. They would have to be cut away from the soft world of the feminine. Oftentimes a boy, particularly within a tribal situation was totally coddled up to a certain age. He was totally worthy, totally accepted, totally considered valuable, had dignity on the merit of his being. Um, and that is good it is important for a child's development. But if he does not actively plunge himself into a moment where he will have to earn his ability to live and his right to lead, he will become a taker and a consummate consumer in the tribe. And so in order for the tribe to trust a man, they had to force him into a confrontation of his own mortality, where his wits and his skills were demanded and where he had to almost be re-brainwashed to learn a new way of being and new skills that could be utilized in a more focused sense. So these twin aspects of actually discovering resources he didn't know he had and confronting his own mortality so he wasn't always running from his death. Those two aspects were critical in traditional initiations. And quite frankly, when I look at society today, I sit there and think, wow, uh, we've got a lot of people who are running from their own deaths. We see that with anxiety, depression, and phobias. And a lot of men who are vampirically latching on to the feminine 
or trying to dominate the feminine. There's two poles right there. But either way, they have not detached from that soft feminine and found their inner masculine, their focus. Say, say a bit more about that, like, you know, either chasing or, or dominating the feminine. And for, you know, just for the benefit of my listeners, um, maybe you could say a little bit about what you mean by the feminine. Yeah. Well, so I'm using archetypical language here, which comes from, from uh, the great psychoanalyst uh, Jung. And really talking about this concept of these twin archetypes, the yin and yang, the polarities, the masculine, the sacred masculine, and the divine feminine. You seem to find it in almost every traditional culture that's existed, including our work. One tends to be more networked, more emotive, more connected, more soft, more empathetic. Um, uh, The other tends to be more rational, more linear, more focused. The wild uh, is always connected with the feminine. This is why you often hear, you know, Mother Earth. Um, whereas, uh, whereas men tend to be far more associated, or rather not men, but the masculine tends to be far more associated with the organized or directional, the conceptional, the sky, the, um, it's far more uh, rational conceptual in its language. So the masculine tends to be organizational in nature and the feminine tends to be networked and empathetic in nature. So these archetypes here, which go into almost every culture and every tribe. So I'm using it in that sense. As far as the predatory sense in a boy, if he hasn't detached from the feminine, well, a man may very well be successful in the world of work but develop in such a way where he's simply a consumer of sex, media, of money, of attention. And that's a man who is not uh, embracing his own inner masculine. That's a man who is still deeply connected to the soft and receptive role of the feminine. So he's vampirically drinking from that world. He's just consuming. And I might add a lot of guys out there who seem very, very progressive are actually just drinking from the soft feminine. You know, whenever they go through a problem, they're calling their gal pal and leaning Mm. on her feminine intuition. Or whenever they go through a situation, they're trying to get feminine attention and feel good about themselves. Or they're looking at porn, right? Whatever it is, they're trying to actually connect with this thing that they imagine is the feminine attachment. That's what I mean of the the vampiricism. On the other side, a man may still be connected to the feminine and then feel resentful of it and try and dominate it and try and make it submit. And, and then you have the macho jerk, you know, or the, I mean, or the, you know, the, um, the industrial polluter or the, you know, the raper and pillager of the earth as opposed to, you know, actual human beings. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah. So those are the two polarities. And for me, I really see them as two sides of the same coin. These are men who have not gone through initiation. They are uninitiated men. So, you know, without, without giving away all your, um, your trade secrets, like what are some of the necessary ingredients or steps for a man to become initiated? I mean, you're, you're working with guys one-on-one and I do, you do work in groups like, how is it that you guide men through an initiation process? Mm-hmm. Well, I think I referenced it earlier, but I think that the deconstructive element is so vital. You have to take a descent into the underworld. In every ancient myth, there's always 
there's always the invitation to initiation. And then there's, this is followed by you're given a guide who will help hold your hand through this process. But then there's always the ordeal itself. And the ordeal itself is a shedding of identity. I tell you, in my work with men, we always get to a point and we get there very, very quickly where there's a great degree of disorientation. There is an absolute bottom. If you can think about a U process, uh, the, the letter U, there's always the, the top and then we descend all the way down. And that descent, as I referenced earlier, is really about defining what values have been theirs up to this point and systematically releasing them. If life has not brought a man to the position of having released those voices and those values he thought was his, if, a, if life has not guided him to the point of disillusionment, I do. So part of my job is to wield the sword of disillusion and whittle a man down till he says, I am I. That's all I know. So in part, it should be a very disorienting situation. And then we begin to come out the other side. We begin to rebuild them. Well, who are you on top of that? What voices do you want to retain? What values do you need to actually continue to hold on to? And then from there, we begin to build the skills he'll need to meet the challenges and the obstacles and the enemies that will come at him that will want to rob him of those goals that he's now undertaking. It's a, it sounds like a delightfully frightening experience to go through. <laughs> I, uh, I look like a barbarian and in that setting, I function as one. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The, the, the long beard and your large stature certainly help. Um, it's so I do have, um, a question. I'm, I've been reading your your content. I love, by the way, I love your newsletter that you send out. It's one of the ones I actually read. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the things that you, you've talked about in the newsletter and then also on your site and you and I have talked about is this idea about, you know, men being hit from every direction. So on the one hand, we're like, yeah, you know, men, we got, we got to dig in, we got to find the shadows, deconstruct, rebuild. But there's something going on in society about men being hit from every direction. And it sounds kind of crazy in this time, in the time of Me Too, because it kind of feels like, wait a second, is that like, do you really mean that men are being hit from every direction? Can you talk a little bit more about that idea, about how men are being hit, why it matters? Sure, sure. Well, I think there's a, a lot of ways we could angle in on that. And what I don't mean to do is diminish the stories that are coming out from Me Too and... I think this actually goes back to my comment about uninitiated men or men behaving badly. Um, to say that men are getting hit from every side right now is not to say that men aren't also part of the problem. They absolutely are. That's part of how we're here. Um, but I think what I mean is that the world is changing so incredibly quick in both positive and negative ways that it's leaving men disoriented. On one hand, men are being asked to be emotionally sensitive, but you know, you don't have to work with couples for too long to hear the female often say, I just wanted you to be able to, to handle my emotions. You know, I just wanted you to, to, oh, I don't know, not react. 
<laughs> what are they asking for? Well, you know, it's kind of like that old song by that singer Jewel. I want you to be emotionally sensitive, but too cool to care. Right. What a weird dichotomy that is to be put in. So on one hand, there's an expectation that we want men to evolve. And on the other hand, there's the expectation that you'll be the same stoic self. I remember my father. And that's just one small example. Another example is we want men to stay home. We want men to feel okay with being with the kids. We want men to feel good about taking on this role, which by the way, men have not taken on for at least the last 250 years in a post-industrial society where we've been around our children nonstop. We want men to take on that role, but on the same hand, we read studies that uh, sex happens more often and better in traditional gendered households in households where the man works outside the house and the woman stays in. This is incomprehensible. Why is this? Well, because the world is changing, but it still hasn't fully changed. So we're making all these demands, but we haven't quite adjusted what we really want. So there's a lot of mixed messaging that's happening to men. And so I'm, I'm encountering it. I'm hearing it a lot from men, you know, like, I don't know what to do. I, I want to be soft. I want to be tender, but I'm realizing that I have no armor to hit back. I have no armor to approach the world as it is. So I think I could probably just stop there and just say, I think that, that those are just two aspects that I noticed that. I mean, they're, it's super relevant though. I mean, I had a, I had a guest on this podcast a few weeks ago, a guy named Eric Arthrell, who I'm meeting in Toronto in a couple of weeks. And he authored a report about the design called the design of everyday men. And it was a human centered design approach. So, you know, they went out and actually talked to, you know, average men working in corporate jobs at all different levels to find out like, what's going on here? Like, what's your reality look like? And it is, I think it's a version of this, of the same concept of men being hit from every direction, especially, you know, men that are working the nine to five, supporting a family, you know, doing the things that a good man should do. But it's like society's definition of what a man is, the workplace's definition or or needs from a man, and the you know the the family's needs. They don't seem to um, allow for a lot of masculinity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I would I would just reference. I, I, last night I was talking with a a, a combat veteran. And he was talking about the tremendous expectations we put on our military personnel that he experienced as a, as a man in that world. And, you know, if you think about how the human psyche is wired to avoid trauma, it is wired to avoid trauma by building emotional resistance points, by shutting down emotions, right? By, by actually numbing to a certain point. So everything in his training to do his job is teaching him to do that. When he comes back home, he's expected to disrobe from that role, to take that off, to be sensitive and caring. How do you tell a man who's seen combat, who's, who's experienced the death of men around him to, to disrobe like that? How do you tell him that? Right? So we're, we're asking something of men to maintain these traditional roles sometimes, while at the same time not allowing them to do what has time immemorial been their coping mechanism. It's a really difficult thing. It's uh, it's reminiscent of um, a, a John Prine song about that called Sam Stone, but a man who comes back from, from Vietnam 
um, mm. and it has a very difficult time integrating uh, back into society. Now, of course, there's you know there's there's drug um, you know morphine addiction yes. in there too, but part of that is like the numbing of the pain, and then coming home to realize that oh my gosh, like society is this is remains this kind of soft underbelly. That's right. That's right. Um, yeah. What a and what and so so there is. I mean, I think you and I face a, a similar challenge in that it's like we're we're kind of arguing for the plight of of the modern man, even though seemingly we've had you know if you know hundreds um, if not thousands of years of uh, of dominance and privilege, but still there's there's room to redefine what it means um, to be a masculine being in this world. But a lot of it, and especially what I've taken away from you and our conversations is like, we're not reinventing anything here. Like in many ways, we actually had it, maybe not right, but we had some things, some things right, you know, hundreds of years ago. And we've really stepped away from it and allowed this new form of pseudo masculinity, as you call it, to leak into society. Yeah. I mean, I don't think the system that we've had for say the last uh, 8,000 years that we call the civilization project, I don't think it's inherently worked very well for men or women. I, I think it has worked very well for some men and some women, but I don't think it's worked very well for most men or most women. And I certainly don't think it's been very good for the plight of humanity. This, this project that has been agricultural, hierarchical, patriarchal, militaristic, consumeristic, and therapeutic, uh, that has not been a great elixir for humanity. And I think when we are talking in a modern sense about pushing back against the role of men, what we really mean to say is the role that we have assigned men collectively in our culture whether men have liked it or not. <laughs> I mean, who likes dying early, existing with more stress, more heart disease, right? <laughs> like on down the line, more suicidality. Is that really a gift you've given us? Probably not. It's a, well, it's, it's a funny thing though, because nobody really wants to speak up about it. Like, especially men, I mean, we hate speaking up, but especially when it comes to that, um, I was doing some reading um, from a researcher at UBC who studies, not, um, gender in the workplace. And uh, she came across this, this funny, scary uh, cognitive bias that we have. It's basically the, the story of the emperor's new clothes, where, you know, especially men in the workplace or in society, we're experiencing all this stuff and we're like, yeah, but I think everyone else likes it. So I better not speak up because if I speak up, I'm probably the only one who's not happy. And I right. think what the work that you're doing and, and the work I'm doing and, you know, many other people on the planet is helping to bring voice to this idea that, hey, like the emperor's not wearing any clothes. Um, men don't love the system either, even though we created it. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, what's so interesting is that some of the biggest, most fanatical aficionados of my work right now are women who are saying what you are doing for men, what you are telling men right now is so vital you are giving them permission to reconnect to the sacred masculine. And that only means a better communion with the divine feminine. Recently, I had a man ask me, give me his litmus test. If I was the real deal, if I was a someone trustworthy and his litmus test was, are you a feminist? 
that was that was his, like he was gonna dispatch me i think if i said yes um and i wisely dodged this bullet i said well i'm a feminist in the sense that i have a mother and a sister and a daughter and a spouse who are women who i am an unapologetic fan of and will advocate for to the nth degree. And I'll tell you, I believe that my primary work on this planet is to work with the sacred masculine. So I'm not very interested in political movements as such, but I will tell you that when the sacred masculine is identified and experienced, the divine feminine will be honored and cared for. So it only behooves us to both play the game, right? If one side loses, we both lose. So the feminine and the masculine desperately need each other to find their power, to find their beauty, to find their, their own unique genius. It's, it's, you know, it's interesting you say that. I, um, I talked to um, an, an author and a researcher in, um, in New York at Fairleigh Dickinson University named Scott Beeson. And he um, done a ton of research around work and family and he's written a book and working on a second around the working, working dad survival guide. And he got invited to the White House um, and under the former administration to speak about, um, to speak about this, this idea of, okay, what's the role of, of men in the future of society and, and work and, and he said, well, funny enough, it was actually a group of women that brought me into the conference. And I was like, I don't really understand. So they sought, I mean, it, it kind of makes sense, but he's like, yeah, well, they were, they so wanted to have this, this topic happen so that men develop so that, you know, they can in, in some ways kind of catch up <laughs> to where, where society's headed. Um, and so it's, it's, it's a similar, a similar concept. Um, but there is an element though, of togetherness and a lot of the I think a lot of the work that that I have seen and I think that's been been going on when I say work I mean you know personal development work a lot of it's been about separating out mm -hmm. um, men and women and I think there there has been and always will be a really important role for that like yep men have got to do the work with other men and women should do work with other women and then there's a time where we have to kind of go all right we got to figure this shit out together. Um, where, where are you seeing that show up in, in your clients and your work? Well, I was actually just thinking, as you were saying that, I was thinking, where do I see that in my life, actually? Mm. Um, so first and foremost, you know, um, my spouse is a, a marriage and family therapist. And <laughs> wow. Always, yeah, <laughs> right. And I always joke that, you know, it's like I married who I needed to employ. Uh, and um, it's been an amazing experience with her. And I think I'm just so aware of how fierce and wild she is. Or even how fierce and wild the women in my life who I've been privileged to love across the years. And so I think in my own development and my own sense of mastery, how it shows up for me is knowing how to both be impacted by the feminine and receptive to it, while at the same time 
give my gift and show up fully. And that tension in my own personal life, right? Because on one hand, you're being fully impacted by the feminine in front of you. And if you've ever been impacted by someone who is truly wild and free, you know that it is a fierce roller coaster, right? I remember the first time I was sitting with my, she wasn't my wife then, but my wife, and she, she started crying randomly. And I said, why are you crying? And I'll never forget what she said. She said, does a girl need a reason to cry? Can't, can't I just cry? And um, I think that really impacted me like, oh, okay, I'm sitting in the presence of a different species here, right? Like, this is not me. Uh, and so I need to be open to it and impacted and still give my gift. So part of my gift is always going to be focus and attention, unidirectional attention, right? So even though you're crying, I'm going to look at causatives because part of how I think in the masculine is cause and effect, right? And so, so I bring that gift without pulling back from that gift while still fully attending to her. So how, my, how that shows up for the men I work with is often primarily in their relationships. That's the first place. Uh, they do. Also, I think a lot of men who I interact with because they're going through midlife transitions are recognizing um, they're, they're leaving marriages sometimes or sometimes their marriage has left them uh, and they're finding themselves alone for the first time. So they're really trying to re-navigate or understand even the world of the feminine for the first time in 20 years or so. Uh, so I see that happening a lot. Frankly, I, I've actually also wondered what it would be like to you know, co-lead a workshop or a retreat around the relating between the masculine and the feminine uh, with someone who has really owned their own inner feminine. Uh, uh, yeah. That would be a fantastic journey. I know having that you been, Having been on the receiving end of them, uh, I can tell you they're very powerful as a yeah. participant. <laughs> right. Like, I, I just imagine that's an incredible experience. And I would certainly love to to inspire more connection between women and men who are living wild and free. Well, and it's, it's a huge part of, um, of your brand, you know, evolving wild. And one of the things that I, I talked about this, you know, early on in our chat here, is like, you've got this manifesto for, for building a tribe. And we, you know, we talked um, back at, at our, uh, our men's retreat about a month ago about, what you do with your with your men's group, where you take them, and it is nothing like what I think about when I think about the word men's group. And I, I mean, I, I do embodiment work, so it feels pretty edgy. But can you, for the benefit of my listeners, like you got a very uh, unique and powerful brand uh, experience around men's groups, and I'd love to hear you talk about that because it. Uh, got got my wheels turning in a big way. Sure. Um, well, I want to capitalize on that word wild first. You you mentioned that, you know, my website is called Evolving Wild. I don't actually have a lot of people ask why, uh, but it, it, it kind of is part and parcel of this whole thing. The word evolve often in our, in our mind means progress. I think that's important to kind of keep that. I'm saying we need to keep progressing. The word wild often means a regression in most of our thinking, like we need to go backwards. 
And I'm pairing the two because I believe that we lost something along the way. I could mean that historically, I could mean that socially, I could mean that politically, but for most of us, I mean it personally. That for most of us, we experienced a time in our life, if even for a few moments, where we felt totally at home in our bodies, totally at home in our awarenesses, where we were living fully and deeply in the here and now in relationship to self and others and the nature around us and, and spirit. We were living in a fully connected and embodied way. And for most of us, that shifted somewhere along the line. And we became, in my line of thinking, domesticated, right? We lost that wild sense. And in order to evolve, in order to go forward, it actually looks a lot like going backward, but with new consciousness, with the kind of consciousness that has been through hell and back again, sort of the hero's journey where we leave home, we go through all these ordeals, and then we come back home bearing gifts. That's really similar to what I envision for men. That's why I called it evolving wild. So when I think of tribe, the goal of tribe is really to, uh, to create a form of catharsis uh, where men are able to experience that thing that has been most repressed in them, and that is their essential self. There's a lot of things I don't know in this world, but one of the things I do know is that in order to access that essential self, we have to be embodied, we have to be physical, and men more so than others, I think because we are so disembodied, we are so unphysical, and yet we experience relationship magic with our physicality. I mean, just ask any man with the backstop of his relationship with his spouses, it's usually sex, right? We're so physical. And so it's the same even in our connections with other men, we long to be physical. I remember the last time uh, before I was re-gifted this experience, I remember the last time I hugged uh, another boy. I was. I think I was in sixth grade. My friend was Andy. My arm was around him at a basketball game. And we were sitting there at this basketball game, totally innocent in connection with each other. Our arms were around each other. We were best of friends. And some older boys passed by and, and they, they called us gay. Said, you guys are just gay. And, and said some other unkind words. They called the F word. And in that moment, I was so ashamed, I was so embarrassed that I stopped being able to touch another man or another boy. And so part of the work with tribe is to become physical, to become embodied, but to become embodied in connection to other men. So we do a lot of grappling, we do a lot of fighting, we do a lot of like competitive sports, not out of a spirit of trying to pummel each other and hurt each other, but rather building camaraderie. You know, in life, there are so many moments where we are taking the blows of life from people who are social media, quote unquote, friends, that it is actually a relieving moment to get hit in the face directly from a man you actually know really is your friend. <laughs> um, and it is, it, is a, it is a primal thing. So one of the first things that we do together as men is we are physical. So we spend a, a great deal of time doing that together, and it takes a lot of forms. Then we do ritual things together. I'm not going to really go into detail about that because yeah, that's yeah. the trade. <laughs> but but there's there's something really primal as we tap into these age old rituals and connect to the symbols that have anchored us to the earth and to ourself. And so we take inward journeys, whether that's through 
meditation or yoga or other experiences that we've created together collectively to deep dive. We have an inward journey. And then the third thing is we organically gather around a fire just as, as men have for millennia. They're in the wild, in the open, looking up at the stars or the rain or the snow. And we tell our stories, the stories of our week, the stories of our life. Just last night, I was sitting with a group of men. And, uh, and sure enough, what happens when after you go through that whole process is you get to the end and men start to pop like popcorn. No one's telling them to share the stories of, of their trauma. No one's telling them that they should unleash their deepest secret. But boy, it happens. Big, tough men suddenly are now sharing these deeply emotive words. And it's an unsafe space in the sense that men are able to share anything they want, anything that comes up for them. And we process through it. We get through it together. We work through it. We don't control or coordinate or cooperate what men are trying to say. We give them a place where they can totally be themselves. And we do it in an organic way. So I think that gives you a little bit of taste about what we do. Yeah, and it's, it, I mean, what, I, what strikes me about it is it's so unique. Uh, it's so, it feels like it's so necessary for a lot of guys. I mean, I think there's a segment of men out there that really get a lot out of, you know, talk therapy and groups where you kind of sit around and talk. And that's, that's cool. This is a, this is a dip. What you're offering is a very different flavor. And it mm -hmm. seems to be striking a chord, especially given all the things we've talked about, where men are at in society and where we've come from. And that idea that evolving does require us to at least look back, but not mm -hmm. necessarily step back and to right. re-experience that. So when you, you know, when, when we were together though, in, um, in our retreat weekend, you took our group through this really simple, seemingly simple, but very profound mindfulness experience. And this to me, you, I mean, you completely demystified it for um, the men in the group and certainly for me. And I, I would love, I would love for you to talk a little bit about and tell, tell this audience a little bit more about like, why, why does mindfulness matter? And especially um, for men, like what's the big importance behind it beyond just the fact that social media and the media now says this is the, this is the next big thing. I mean, there's something more to it than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's so good. Well, I think you'd have to be hiding under a rock not to have heard the word mindfulness at this point. But I think whatever we call it, revelation, enlightenment, mindfulness, um, that mindfulness at its core is waking up moment by moment by moment. And there is an age-old principle that I think bears a great degree of weight and almost all the wisdom traditions that would state that in large part humanity is is asleep <laughs> we're sleepwalking through life we're born asleep we go to school in our sleep we go to college in our sleep we date in our sleep we get married in our sleep we have kids in our sleep on and on we're sleeping and it usually takes something incredibly painful to wake us up or we can choose to wake up, right? And so what I'm talking about when I talk about mindfulness is that conscious choice to wake up. 
And we do that through becoming aware of the here and now without judgment, without labeling, without the need to control. We simply step into the experience of observing life as it is, reality as it is, without conditions or preconceptions. And we move into a place of being able to describe that in effective terms and then truly participating in ways that mirror and match our deepest and highest values. That's really the experience of mindfulness. Why should you do it? Well, you want control of your life back, don't you? You don't want to be a sleepwalker, do you? You don't want to just be reacting endlessly. I, I don't. And that's why we practice mindfulness. It's, a, it's, it's interesting. There's a, <laughs> there's, a, there's a great quote from uh, Yogi Bhajan. He's, the, he brought Kundalini Yoga to the West. And um, as a practitioner myself, this, this hit me pretty hard. And it was about the next generation of leaders and who they're going to be. And so he said that the next generation of leaders are the people who have escaped the forest of their own suffering mm -hmm. and who are following the breadcrumbs of their soul. Mm -hmm. And when I hear you talk about mindfulness, it, to me, it's that first piece. It's escaping the forest of our own suffering. Like we don't even know that we're in a forest of suffering until we become mm -hmm. mindful. And so it does not necessarily mean that you have to, you know, sit on a cushion for three hours and just breathe to become mindful. But there's so many other ways to wake up, as you say, moment to moment waking up. Right. Um, what I mean, on a, on a super tactical level for men that are listening and wondering, like, OK, give me an example of not sitting on a cushion um, you know, in a yoga studio with music on and being mindful. What would it look like for a guy who's sitting in an office at a chair and he has 90 seconds to make himself mindful. Yeah, this is called grocery store mindfulness. <laughs> and, and by that, I just mean, like you can do this in the grocery store. You don't have to have a special cushion or a couch to do this. Uh, literally anywhere, because mindfulness can be consolidated down to three simple steps that are in a highly effective manner. And what those are, are one, to simply observe, to notice what is. Two, to then move on to describing what is. And it's so important that you not jump to describing before you observe, right? Like right now I'm sitting out in the somewhat wild parking lot of a Starbucks <laughs> and I'm, <laughs> I'm looking at a tree and you see how I've already moved on to labeling. I've already moved on to describing because that thing that I'm looking at, I didn't actually appreciate. I almost just instantly dismissed it. Oh, that's a tree. Well, the truth is that the thing I'm looking at is rather scraggly. It, it in part is falling on one side. I'm noticing that some of its arms on one side are far more plentiful. I'm noticing that there's brown all along the, the base of it, right? Do you see that I'm, I, I've already jumped to labeling the moment I say it's a tree and I'm not interested in the experience of it. So, so, so often we move on to describing before we observe. So we start with observation. We take a beginner's mind. And so if you're sitting in your chair at home, the first thing you do or at your office, the first thing that you do is you breathe in deep and you simply begin to notice. You notice what? Well, you notice your breath and you notice your body and you notice the cushion against your bum and you notice the floor 
and you notice the wall in front of you or the window, you notice everything. You even notice the state of your own emotions. I feel fluttery right now. I'm, I'm noticing some, some tension in my chest. You notice everything. Nothing is off limits. So observe. Second, describe, right? Just like I've done. The first is sensory awareness. The second is then describing it. And I've had to do that because we're talking out loud here. The third step is to choose how to effectively participate. So I participate in that moment, right? What is called of me? next? What do I do next? So I observe, I describe, and then I choose how I want to participate. And we do this in a certain way. How we do this is we do this non-judgmentally. We release all of our judgments. We do this effectively, meaning we do what works, right? Uh, these are the critical steps to mindfulness, non-judgmentally, effectively. And I would also say one thing at a time. We're horrible multitaskers. So uh, we try and be effective by being mindful even of our mindfulness, one thing at a time. So those are, those are what I would say the steps you could do sitting right then. And believe it or not, you can gain tremendous psychological benefit by simply practicing that, that three-step model I just described with 90 seconds. Grocery store mindfulness. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love how you broke it down. I mean, it's... Um... You broke it down in a very masculine way. There's there are three steps. You do not skip step one. You do not skip step step two. And there's a there's an allotment of time for it. So it feels like a thing that um, most masculine uh, beings on the planet would be able to take on with ease, maybe. Totally. Um, except that there's there's a you know a part of it that you described that is uh, I think one of the most confronting things that certainly was for me is you become aware of your emotional state. Yeah. Yeah. And that to me is the, is like the, that's where the shadow lives. It's where the, where the gold is. It's where all the stuff is buried. And I think, I suspect that's why we tend to avoid it. We have um, in the men's group I'm in now, you know, we have this practice that a lot of us are doing called do nothing practice. Mm. It's actually not mindfulness. I mean, it kind of is, but in essence, it's like set your timer for 20 minutes and literally do nothing. Mm. Like don't read, you know, if, if thoughts come in, whatever, but you're not trying to, to, to be unattached or breathe in a particular way. Yeah. And man, stuff comes out and it's uncomfortable. And I think mindfulness is another way of getting at that, which is yeah. like, how do we get into the basement as you described earlier? Um, you know, the, an infinite basement of shadows, how do we get into the soil that we need to recompost? That's it. And it's the awareness piece. That's it. That's why I teach mindfulness, because mindfulness is really flipping on the light switch. It does no good for me to tell you to pick out your favorite couch or your favorite furniture in a furniture store if all the lights are out in the store. Right? <laughs> so what we want to go ahead and do is we want to flip on the lights. Otherwise, you're just stumbling around. And, and so that's what we're doing. We're there in the basement or, or we're walking down the steps and we need to flip on the lights. So we have to teach mindfulness because we're never gonna be able to appreciate the fact that in that basement are not monsters. In that basement are simply things that are either effective or ineffective, right? All of our shadows are the things that we thought were unacceptable, the things we thought that we would be judged about, the things that we are ashamed of, the things that we pushed away from our personality to try and keep it under wraps, to avoid that sense of, of judgment from others. 
And we've pushed it there into the basement. And then we've imagined that there were monsters there, that it was actually filled with horrible, terrible things. And if anyone really knew, then they would just divorce themselves from us. But what happens when we become mindful and we turn on the lights is that we see that it's actually grandma's old, you know, blouse over here, or it's grandpa's trunk, or it's, it, it's just stuff. It's just a whole bunch of stuff. And either we can choose to sell it a garage sale or we can choose to bring it into our wardrobe, right? But suddenly we have choices when we turn on the light. And that's why mindfulness is so effective. It gives us choices again. It, it's, um, it's really timely that you, that you brought this up too. We had the amazing fortune of on our, on our men's group call today, we actually had it hosted by David Data, who is... Um, yeah, amazing teacher of men's work and, and relational yoga. And, and mm. he recently re-released his book as a 20th anniversary of, um, of his, well, one of his famous books called The Way of the Superior Man, which I've talked about on this cast before. And in that, I'm gonna, I just wanna share, share a quick quote because I think it just ties this whole thing up. Um, and he, so he wrote, he wrote a new forward is the most important piece based on, hey, you know, 20 years have gone by yes, the work's still relevant, and let me tell you why it matters. And there's a great paragraph in there, and it, it goes like this. He says, when a man's value is no longer measured by what he does, by his finances or social standing, how does he determine his worth? In our new world, a man's presence, his depth of awareness, is his most valuable asset. That's so good. Mm. And that right. to me is like just one more reason why, you know, mindfulness, men's work, tribe, initiation, all these things, they matter. It's because the mm. things that we thought people cared about, mm -hmm. they do not matter. That's right. Yeah. And it's about finding what truly matters to us or maybe another way of saying that is finding the face that we were before we were born and then living that person out intentionally. And that's identity and that's purpose. And then doing that with others. That's tribe. I mean, and I think what is, what is great is you have found a very particular set of of tools and practices and processes. None of it, none of it cookie cutter, all of it customized for your clients, but it actually helps men get there and you accelerate the journey. And that's the thing. I mean, you can get there, but man, if you get there and you spend 30 years getting there, there's 30 years of pain that you might've been able to avoid. Um, right. And, you know, I, I get really excited thinking about and, and, you know, having experienced some of the work that you do just knowing that that avenue's out there for men that really connect to the idea that, yeah, like there's a physicality I'm missing or there's a brotherhood element I'm missing or there's a ritual or there's an initiation. Um, so let me, as like, as we wrap up this conversation here, where, where can people go to find out more about you? And I'm gonna, I'm gonna link it up in the show notes, but a lot of people, you know, they're on listening in the car or something like, where do they go find you right here? evolvingwild.live gets you to just about everything you need to get to with me. Um, we have a podcast there, which I host called Lost Man Standing. We've got articles, by the way, 
you were you yourself were a guest on Lost Man Standing recently. And I remember it well. <laughs> that was such a fun time together. And so you'll find uh, uh, Travis there as, as well as a, a number of other amazing men who are serving up great content and, um, and doing great work. Um, and then you'll find articles on there. You'll also find a link to my work, the offerings that I do, initiation that Travis mentioned earlier, as well as other coaching packages that I offer. You can also find links to my social media presence, uh, particularly on Instagram. That's where I'm most active, uh, Evolving Wild again. Yeah. And if you're interested, I would also say evolvingwild.live backslash 10 day, and that's one zero, 10 day challenge. So evolvingwild.live backslash 10 day challenge. And if you sign up for that, that's actually going to get you to a unique self-initiation 10 day challenge. It's not the full program, but it, it is in many ways tailored to help men begin to think about that process for themselves and begin to experience some of those results in a self-directed uh, way. What, what I'll add, um, not as far as where to find you, but when, it, when I read your stuff and I come across your content on Instagram every day and I read your newsletter, you know, for the people listening out there, if you read it, there's an actual voice, like he's actually taking a stand. So there's a certain style and a certain approach to that Rainier has. And if it starts to, if it resonates with you, my God, give this man a phone call. If it doesn't, great. Like he's not for you. If you want to sit around and, and talk a bunch and, you know, do a bunch of contrived process, great. But if you really want to do the work, man, I can tell you this man's got the depth, uh, the experience, huge amount of uh, just like the psychological research behind like how all this stuff works in case you get curious, but more importantly, his own presence and depth is, is his gift to you and to the world. So Rainier, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being on the men at work podcast. Uh, this, this episode will I'll link up all the ways to find you. And I, um, I'll leave you in your Starbucks parking lot. Uh, to complete whatever your your half fat latte might be that you're drinking. <laughs> my my feral Starbucks uh, <laughs> consumerism. That's great. <laughs> yeah. All right, my brother. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rainier. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Whew. All right. That is a wrap on episode number 17 of the Men at Work podcast with Rainier Wild. Uh, you can see he's got a real passion for helping men discover their true purpose. And he's got just a massive amount of depth and experience in this area. So I highly encourage you check out Rainier. You can check out his podcast, Lost Man Standing. Uh, subscribe to his newsletter if you're keen. They're not long articles. It's not going to inundate your inbox. And they're actually worth reading. He's got a real voice. And he is an amazing, amazing writer. Even better book some time with this guy. You can book a call with him right through his website, have a chat to him and see if this is something that you want to uh, dive into with him. Either way, uh, please check out Rainier. And if you enjoyed today's cast, uh, give me a rating on iTunes or Stitcher or SoundCloud or wherever else you're listening to your podcasts. And if you have the time and the energy, I would sure appreciate a few minutes of your time to actually write a review. It really helps me get the word out about this podcast and the conversation I'm trying to fuel about men in the world of work. 
All right, stay tuned next week for episode number 18.